Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the show that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whomever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We're continuing our segment today on the reframing and engaging of the refugee crisis. If you didn't hear our episode last week with Killian Kleinschmidt, you should check it out at socialdesigninsights.com. Killian gave us a great interview and I think really took a global view of the refugee crisis and, and set us straight on a couple of terms. We're expanding that conversation today with Dr. Nina Hall, who is an assistant professor of international relations at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She holds a doctorate in international relations from Oxford and a master's from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. She's also the author of one of my new favorite books, Displacement, Development, and Climate Change, International Organizations Moving Beyond Their Mandates, published by Rutledge in 2016. I had hoped that Nina could join us on the show because she's an expert on international agencies and their construction and evolution, as well as in different forms of digital advocacy, using the internet to mobilize people offline and online. As you'll hear in this conversation, Dr. Hall really sets up a framework for a lot of how this quote-unquote refugee conversation has taken shape since World War II. A lot of the ways in which we design, if you can call it that, are unwittingly shaped by frameworks set up under a different time for a different purpose. And you know, on this show, we always believe that it's time to radically rethink everything. So without further ado, let's get to the show and meet Dr. Nina Hall. Hi, Nina. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm joining you from sunny Bologna. And we're all quite jealous of that, I can assure you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, when we, we spoke earlier, I kind of talked about my motivation here. I think there's a lot of interested and activist designers out there who approach the refugee crisis, if you want to call it that, without really an understanding of the systems at work that, that kind of shape our, our global contemporary conversation on that. Could you give the audience an introduction to yourself and and, and your work and, and how you came to do what you do? I'm a professor of international relations. I'm based at Johns Hopkins SICE, and it is an American university, and they do happen to have a campus in Bologna, hence me being here. I'm, I'm not on holiday. I, I'm teaching students. <laughs> so my background is in the study of global refugee and migration governance. I come from New Zealand. I became particularly interested as a New Zealander in debates about climate change's impact on the Pacific Islands because they're neighboring states, and as your listeners may be aware, There's long been discussions about if and how Pacific Islanders from particular countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu may need to move and relocate. And I ended up working briefly at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in New Zealand and then going on to a doctorate, a PhD at at Oxford University, where I worked with various professors of international relations and, and refugee studies to try and understand changes in the global governance architecture. So here we're talking about the international organizations like United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the International Organization for Migration. And the question that drove my doctoral research, now this was about 10 years ago, was these institutions were created after World War II. After World War II, the problems were different. They were, we have a number of political refugees in Europe from European countries and we need to help them. Now, fast forward 60 years or more later to today's world, and we have different drivers of displacement. So my research has looked at how those two institutions have dealt with the issues around climate change and displacement and asked to what extent their mandates are expanding. In the last three to four years, I've actually been looking more at advocacy and activism around refugee rights. So I've been following a group of digital organizations, like many of your listeners will know, Move On, 
And there are other organizations around the world like Move On in Canada. There's Lead Now in Germany, Campact in New Zealand, Action Station. And these all follow a similar model of using the internet to mobilize people online and offline. And I've been writing, and just this week actually has come out an article in the International Affairs and Academic Journal about how digital platforms have mobilized people to, to advocate for refugee rights. So I want to take those two sort of broad areas um, in turn. You know, when I first read your work, it was a revelation to me. I look out on the world and the refugee situation and, I mean, some things that UNHCR and IOM are doing well um, and some things not so well. And I didn't have a vehicle for really explaining that until I read your work. And it just, you, you kind of made it seem obvious, right? I mean, these were birthed after World War II for a very specific purpose. They have an international, and in UNHCR's case, a legal mandate over, you know, world law, essentially. And climate change refugees have really emerged as a conversation only in the last couple of decades. Can you give us like the 50,000 feet about, you know, how these international organizations are adapting? Are, are they adapting internally? Or are they adapting formally? How is all that working? One of the things that strikes me is often in debates about climate change and what's often called climate refugees, there's sort of a bit of presentism, as in we're very focused on, on the future. And, and so what I try and do in my research is trace how this very issue has come about in the first place, as in the link between climate change and displacement. And secondly, how these institutions have responded. We, we use the word climate refugees in popular discussions quite often. But it's worthwhile for your listeners to realize that that term A is legally incorrect. There isn't anything current as a climate refugee because the International Refugee Convention that was signed after World War I, uh, World War II, sorry, was very clearly about, as I referred to earlier, political persecution. So you can't currently be granted refugee status if you're fleeing because of a natural disaster or an indirect effect of climate change. So that's a really important starting point for the conversation. While there have been debates and NGOs and some academics have said maybe we should grow or expand the mandate of the 1951 Refugee Convention, at this point in time, there isn't any precedent or it's not in written law for somebody to be granted refugee status because they're fleeing climate change. That blows my mind. I mean, it blew my mind when I read it. And now again, when you've said it, and we hear these eye-popping numbers, there's going to be 50 million climate refugees. And I, I realize now that's an incorrect term. You know, there's going to be 100 million, there's going to be a billion, et cetera. And what we're saying here is they have no legal status at all. So a couple of points on this. One, the numbers that are being thrown around out there are useful indicators, but a lot of the migration scholars have said, wait a minute, we need to be a little bit careful about how we do these calculations. People don't always move. So what do I mean by this? Okay, an extreme natural disaster, even Hurricane Katrina, not everyone left, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the numbers that are being calculated are basically trying to tell us how many people are likely to be affected in extreme scenarios of climate change. Now, without minimizing the extremity of climate change, I completely acknowledge that. What's important here is that in social science, we recognize that individual actors have agency and may or may not choose to move or may or may not be able to. Which brings me to my second point, that often it's the most vulnerable that stay behind. So some of the debates about climate refugees have said, you're pointing your finger in the wrong direction. If you're just focusing on the people who have to move, in some cases they may have to move and they may be very vulnerable, but sometimes the most vulnerable. If we again look back at Hurricane Katrina, which you mentioned in your setup, I mean, very clearly we've got a problem of class and race. Who are the people who don't leave, right? It's predominantly 
poor working class and often African Americans. So if we were to help the people who moved, we would be dispersing our aid to the wrong people. And I think there's a third problem that's really important to highlight around these debates is that often when we focus on climate refugees, we forget the people, what, what their desires are. The people say the affected communities in the Pacific, many of them say they don't want to be refugees. They want to migrate with dignity. And I quote here actually a former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, who's come out very strongly both as president and subsequently afterwards against the determination. Now, I should highlight him because he is coming from one of the few countries that is pretty much all at a meter or two above sea level. We're talking low-lying adult countries. And there's only a couple of them in the Pacific. Most of the Pacific does have some topography, which means people could move internally to higher land. Of course, that would cause problems for them. But the point being, even those people that are worst affected from Kiribati, from Tuvalu, some of their leaders are saying, look, we want to migrate. We've always migrated. It's another important thing to keep in mind. There have always been patterns of migration. And so they want pathways to do that. Some of the debates around the climate refugee category, while they've been done in good faith, there's a lot of people who want support for people affected by climate change. We need to just be quite careful around the categories that we use and think about who are we helping? Who are the most vulnerable? And what do those affected communities actually want? That's interesting the way that you put that. And I think a theme that's already started to emerge in this series is, I guess, what I call the othering of refugees, right? You know, we sort of like draw an image around them and we say, like, this is what a refugee looks like. And it looks a lot like, you know, what I see on the news. And it's deserving of my pity and my donations, not necessarily of dignity and respect. You know, it's some kind of other class of person. And, and I detect that, you know, in the sort of popular consciousness and, and sometimes in the design consciousness. Is that happening at institutional levels as well? Or is the conversation there in, in another direction? It's a hard one to respond to straight off the bat because institutions are also diverse. They're not <laughs> like refugees, if you like. They're also different. It's not a big monolith like I've been thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is... Uh, at the global level, sometimes the conversation or the discussions about refugees or migrants for that matter may seem a little divorced and abstract. And they are using a sort of generalized language of, you know, refugee assistance or migration assistance. But also with both of the organizations I study, UNHCR and IOM, they have thousands of staff in the field. In my, my doctoral research, I spent time in two refugee camps in northern Kenya, one Kakuma on the border with South Sudan and the other in Dadaab on the border with Somalia. So people there are very close to a situation. They're meeting. Part of their role is to determine refugee status. So they're meeting one-on-one -on -one with people and hearing their particular stories. And I talked with officials who were able to describe there had been more displaced people, refugees coming across the border from Somalia due to political persecution and also due to drought. So they're able to disentangle or to, to discuss the complex situations of particular individuals. So there, I would say it isn't divorced. So in a way, it depends where you are in that chain, in that hierarchy of an institution. Are you operating in a very global policy discussion or are you on the ground or somewhere in between? Let's let's try and chart like how this conversation is evolving. I mean, we've talked about the debate that exists. I mean, we started after World War II with a very sort of specific mandate for all these international organizations that were created in response to World War II. Where are we at right now and how much farther do we have to go in terms of, I don't know, maybe establishing some sort of universal protection for anybody who's who's displaced in that way? 
UNHCR was created in 1950, and I'll focus more on UNHCR because that's the organization that has the mandate to supervise the Refugee Convention. IOM is an interesting organization, which I can talk about afterwards, but it manages migrants and it doesn't determine refugee status. UNHCR was set up and it had a very small team of refugee lawyers. I like telling my class when it was first set up, they could all sit around a piano. That's how small it was and sing Christmas carols at the end of the year. Now that's a different situation now. It was originally set up, which very few people realize, to only assist European refugees. A refugee actually was designed as somebody who was fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution based on grounds such as race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or a political opinion, and was in Europe. And it was only later, you know, a good 20 uh, odd years later, that it expanded to, to Africa, the Americas, to Asia, which is funny now, because when we think of a refugee, the typical image that would come to many people's mind is, unfortunately, somebody in Africa, an African. And I mention that quite strongly, because I think it's important for us to understand the evolution even of who is a refugee and who is deemed worthy of protection. UNHCR did expand its mandate in other ways. It expanded it in terms of including new groups of people, like stateless people. That was something that was added, I believe, in 1961. And it expanded in terms of the size of its staff. It got more field offices. It went more operational. So originally it was more set up as a, as a legal office. And then I guess for the purposes of our discussion, the key real shifts happened in the 2000s. So when the debate around climate change and displacement took off, and I should say there was also a shift in the climate space because what had originally happened in the climate negotiations, which I trace in my book, is that people had focused on how climate change was going to impact polar bears right? You remember the early days was like, oh, the polar ice caps are going to melt and all these polar bears are going to die. And then people started to realize it was going to go beyond the polar ice caps and it was going to affect humans. And it was really the humanitarian community led um, to some extent by the Red Cross who said, we need to talk about the impacts, particularly on vulnerable people in developing countries, because they're likely to get hit the hardest. There were some NGOs a number of environmental NGOs who were also saying, we need to get our governments to take action. How can we do that? We can tell them about the huge cost, the huge number of refugees that are come fleeing into their country unless they do something. Now, the problem here was that a number of the environmental NGOs were very well-meaning, but their primary focus was on how do we get action and mitigation? We want our governments to take action on climate change. Now, they were less attuned or aware of the discussions in the refugee space about, A, the fact that they wouldn't be classified as refugees. So the definitions that were, were the, the sort of terms being flown around in the early 2000s were incorrect. And in fact, coming back to UNHCR, their very early policy statements and rhetoric was about refuting, about saying, no, no, these people who may be affected, may be indirectly displaced because of you know, increased sea levels or more droughts, they're not refugees. So in a way, their first engagement, UNHCR's, was a negation. It was to say, no, we're not worried about them. We're not concerned. They don't fit in our mandate. Now, this changed in about 2008. And in my book, I sort of trace how the High Commissioner, Antonio Guterres, former Prime Minister of Portugal and now the UN Secretary General, so someone who's had a, a very excellent career at the top, both of his own domestic politics as well as the UN system, he saw quite an expansionary role for UNHCR. And what do I mean by that? He thought that UNHCR should be more than just for refugees and stateless people, but it should be an agency for displaced peoples. And he went on the record urging states to say, 
we need to expand UNHCR's mandate and think about new forms of displacement, including climate change, and made a number of speeches about that. In 2011, he actually urged his member states at a council meeting to consider expanding the, the refugee convention. It was a major year for UNHCR because they were commemorating their 60th anniversary. And so there was a sort of opportunity on the table at the council meeting of ministers to think and, as I quote here, formulate or adopt a set of principles specifically designed to reinforce the protection of and find solutions for people who have been forced to leave their own country but may not qualify for refugee status under international law. So this idea was put on the table, but states resoundingly rejected it. That is one of the most surprising things I, I found in your work that, you know, all these member states basically pushed back uh, against this idea. Like, why was that? I think it's important to remember that this was 2011. So it's not even the era that we like to call the sort of populist anti-immigration era. But states have always been very reluctant to take on new responsibilities and obligations to protect new groups of vulnerable or displaced peoples. I'm saying this analytically, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with this. They are reluctant because they don't want to have UNHCR sort of breathing down their neck and saying, look, you haven't done enough for this other group of people when they already feel like, you know, they've got refugees and there's lots of them and there's not enough assistance around the world. So they're just gonna add another group of people that they have to worry about in addition to their own citizens. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Dr. Nina Hall about the rise and formation of all these great global organizations that work on refugees, but sometimes don't, but sometimes do, but won't call them refugees. It's fascinating stuff with a rich history, but we're going to take a quick break. While we're breaking, check us out on social media where you can find out more about Nina and find links to her work. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at Social Design IM. When we get back, we're going to be talking more about digital activism and how that plays into the effort to help displaced peoples. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We've been speaking with Dr. Nina Hall of the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies about the rise of international aid organizations. Coming up, we're going to drill down a bit, and Dr. Hall is going to correct a common misconception about activism. We'll also be talking about how humanitarian assistance goes digital. Let's rejoin the conversation. Given their, their reticence to embrace that international authority, I mean, it, it almost seems like a contradiction in terms because every member state of the UN, with the possible exception of the United States, is in full support of the idea that climate change is probably the world's most urgent issue and one that will take unprecedented global cooperation to fix. And yet the consequences of that, people on the move, are, are something that they're kind of resoundingly saying we don't want to deal with. So I think there's a few different parts to this puzzle. First of all, I don't think, unfortunately, states are on board with tackling climate change. I mean, yeah, Trump has come out strongly. I was just writing and reading a piece this morning. I mean, Merkel, who's often seen as sort of a championing liberal leader, if you want to call her that, in the U.S. context of opening the doors to refugees and signing up to Paris. If you look at her domestically, 
Germany's not on target to meet their commitments. They're not, you know, doing enough. And that's Germany. I mean, if we don't have to think about Poland, about Saudi Arabia, you know, there are a number of countries that aren't interested or rhetorically might make pronouncements that they're committed to addressing climate change. But when it comes to practice, that's a lot harder to change economies. And there are vested interests that a lot of politicians don't want to annoy. So I think that's on the climate change. On the refugee point, I unfortunately think it's a bit of a similar situation where people will say in rhetoric, oh, we, we care about other people, we want to look after us. But at the end of the day, they're thinking about their budgets. They're thinking about how do we, you know, go up to our populations and justify having to help people far away. And some politicians see that as a difficult thing to do. And I'm, I'm not saying this to justify. I think it's very unfortunate. I think the scale of most of our global problems do require cooperation. We should also remember that most refugees are not in developed countries. They're not in Europe. They're not in US. The vast majority are living in developing countries, whether it be Lebanon or Turkey or Bangladesh or Kenya. So I do think sometimes these problems, the politics of them are very, very skewed and, and the way they get talked about in the global north is problematic. I wanted to touch on some of the work that you've been doing in digital advocacy around refugees. It seems a double-edged sword. It can get people really involved in a social media space and sense, but it almost seems like there's this big risk that it assures people that this is all they have to do. I guess I'm, I'm leaning towards collectivism, if you will. How do you balance that? Social media is a tool for action versus the risk of excluding other forms of action. These are big questions, right? Particularly in today's era of thinking, how do we how do we regulate Facebook? How do we regulate WhatsApp? I'm I'm also quite conscious of this debate right now in my own home country just to contextualize it. There are very strong views about the need to regulate Facebook because of the massacre that happened on March the 15th where a gunman shot 50 Muslims praying in two mosques in a city in, in New Zealand in Christchurch and it was all Facebook live video shared. Facebook did try and take down and claim they did as many as they could, but they weren't fast enough. They didn't take them all down. And I was just reading in the last few days that they claim they've changed their practices afterwards, but people have gone back and, you know, they're still sharing white supremacist videos. So I do think there is a very pressing need in terms of big tech for us to change international regulation. And Zuckerberg, I note, has come out uh, in a Washington Post article about two weeks ago stating that he thinks that, that we do need rules for the internet, which is pretty big coming from him, and that they need independent arbitration around some of these questions around online hate speech. And I know in the New Zealand context, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has said very strongly that she'll be looking to take international action on these issues. I think one of the real problems when addressing a new global issue like how do we regulate Facebook as a publisher of hate speech is that we don't really have a global institution that's a natural home to have that conversation. So it, it leaves to states like New Zealand that want to take some leadership. They've got to kind of figure out how do we bring a constellation of states together? Where is the right place for this? So I think we're going to see quite a lot of debate and discussion and potential change in the next year or so on that front. I, I think we have to. It's difficult to imagine otherwise. And, and where do we go from here? I mean, as applied to the refugee question, how do those two worlds intersect? I mean, I think for most of our audience, the way they intersect is to, you know, get an appeal for aid, right? Um, and these kind of moving images of people in distress and, you know, please 
click to contribute $5. The manifest in terms of, you know, sympathy posts, isn't this awful, this awful thing that's happening? Will you please like share and retweet and, and everything like that? I guess I, I'm, I'm zoning in on the question of, of clicktivism, right? I mean, the idea that because we're sharing all this stuff in social media, we don't actually have to do anything else about it. What's your take on, on social media as a tool for action versus the risk of inaction as applied to, to refugees in this situation? I've written a little bit around this issue and with an interest in how the academic and mostly the public debate has seen online actions and I think a very binary view, right? If it's online, it's slacktivism. If it's on the streets, it's meaningful and transformative. That's the kind of general binary. And I think the problem with that view is that it doesn't actually understand the way that most advocacy organizations who are working for refugee rights operate. Essentially, there are two kinds of advocacy organizations, if you like. You're those that are, have long-standing refugee councils in various countries or UNHCR that have been around for years and have a core community of members that care about refugee rights and will sign petitions. UNHCR asks their members to sign petitions or go out in the street. And then there is a second group, which are the groups that I study, who are more generalist, that they campaign on things like if you think of Move On, it will campaign on climate change, Keystone Pipeline, LGBT rights, a range of issues, including refugee issues, and pivot or shift between them. And these groups are on, often are digitally based, but also mobilize people offline. So already what we're seeing is we're seeing what we can call the legacy organizations, the organizations created before the internet, use the internet to mobilize people. UNHCR uses petitions, uses social media, so does Amnesty, so does Human Rights Watch. And these newer organizations created in the internet era, the ones that I've spent some time researching and studying and working on a book on them right now, is that they also use the internet and do so to mobilize people offline. So to give you a very concrete example of this, I looked at 2015 in the aftermath of what many called in Europe the refugee crisis, in inverted commas, because of course the crisis was somewhat I would argue, manipulated and manufactured by politicians and the numbers of refugees were much less in the developing countries. But what we saw is that groups, uh, whether it be in the UK or Australia, they mobilized their members and the public to sign up and offer a refugee a home in, in Ireland or to push local councils in the UK to increase the number of people they would have to stay. And they also got people out on the streets to hold vigils. In Australia, they had thousands of people on the streets and they even later in February, this was more a domestic situation in Australia where they were trying to block the deportation of asylum seekers who were on the Australian mainland and were going to be deported back to these offshore islands, Manus and Naru. The organization I study, Get Up, which is like move on, worked very strongly to stop that deportation. And actually it got people out on the streets and even blocking the deportation of a baby from a hospital. The point I would make is, and, and this has been made by other scholars, I'm not the only one to make this, I've actually got a book on my desk right now by James Dennis, Beyond Slacktivism, which makes this point very well too, to say we need to stop thinking in these binary terms of online equals slacktivism, offline equals transformative, and recognize there's a broad range of ways that people engage in political action Social media can be a gateway, if you like. It can be an enabler, and it can be complemented with other forms. That is an extremely positive rendering, and I think you're the first guest on this show that's actually said something optimistic about social media, so thank you. Can I just add one minor comment? 
just for the audience, because when you asked me about UNHCR and I sort of stopped the story in 2011 where everything didn't work because the ministers blocked Antonio Guterres's pitch to expand, I just would want to note, however, that there was a small group of states, five, who said we are committed to thinking about the impacts of climate change on international displacement. And they set up an initiative called the Nansen Initiative, and that initiative has now transformed into the platform on uh, disaster displacement. So there are a few spaces where that conversation is ongoing, and I wouldn't want your listeners to leave thinking all is lost. Nina, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, I think it was it was absolutely critical to get an understanding of these systems and these institutions and how they, they sort of operate in a background that, that a lot of designers don't always see. So I'm, I'm sure that our audience has gained a lot from it. No problem. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Dr. Nina Hall, for lending her expertise on this critical issue. As we seek to design for a new world of climate change and displacement, we might also give some thought to redesigning the systems that we've been holding on to. I think Dr. Hall and her work articulates the complexity of this possibility. International organizations aren't bad or good, but they're there. And they're full of good people who are a designer's ally in seeking to design a better world. To learn more about Dr. Hall and her work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. Join us next week. We'll be furthering this discussion and talking with Mariam Chazel-Noel of IOM about their work on climate-driven displacement. Uh, As you heard in the interview, IOM is International Organization of Migration. That's a completely different story, and can't wait to get into it next week. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Zeichner, and at the break, we're listening to I Don't Mind by Rob Ruha and The Witch Doctor from their album, Survivance. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you like the show, let us know on social media. You can like, subscribe, follow, send us some emoji, whatever your heart desires. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at Social Design IN for all the latest news on social impact design. <laughs>